Stephen Gray is the author of Cannabis and Spirituality, an explorer's guide to an ancient plant spirit ally. A simple way that I like to refer to cannabis is as a non-specific amplifier. Cannabis can be an adjunct or a supporter of a variety of practices, meditation, yoga, and so on. Also, Michael Eric Dyson, author of Tears We Cannot Stop, a sermon to white America. Time and again, and this is what I address in my book, police brutality rises up in America and makes a mockery of the justice system, makes a mockery of who we are uh, as human beings, that makes a mockery of us as American citizens who should be protected by the law and not made more vulnerable by that law. And so it is difficult for a police person to be brought to justice in our criminal justice system. Grand juries often will not indict a police officer. This is Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. Pacifica Radio Network and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. On October 1st, 2015, Oregon joined Washington and Colorado as the third state to legalize recreational use of cannabis. Now that it is easy as going to one of the many cannabis shops in the state and choosing from a wide selection of strains, many who perhaps haven't used cannabis since college or are curious and using it for the first time may have many questions about the plant. Many misconceptions about cannabis abound. It is much maligned and misunderstood. Today, we will address questions such as what are its effects? What's a good dosage? Why do some people have negative experiences with it, such as paranoia or anxiety? Is it addictive? Is it good for society to legalize cannabis? We will address those questions in this episode of Progressive Spirit, but we're going to go further. We're also going to talk about the spirituality of cannabis. How can cannabis be an ally in spiritual practice? My guest is Stephen Gray. Stephen Gray is a teacher and writer on spiritual subjects and sacramental medicines. He's worked extensively with Tibetan Buddhism, the Native American Church, and with entheogenic medicines. The author of Returning to Sacred World, a spiritual toolkit for the emerging reality. He's also a conference and workshop organizer, leader, and speaker, as well as a part-time photographer and music composer under the artist named Kerry. He lives in Vancouver, British Columbia. He's written a new book that we will discuss today, Cannabis and Spirituality, an explorer's guide to an ancient plant spirit ally. From Vancouver, British Columbia via Skype, welcome, Stephen, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you, John. Tell me about this book, Cannabis and Spirituality. How did it uh, come to be? Well, uh, I've been involved with uh, uh, entheogens or psychedelics in one fashion or another and spiritual work uh, for a long time. Uh, one of the things that that led to, I have a previous book from 2010 called uh, Returning to Sacred World, and that introduced me to a whole new uh, bunch of people. And I got involved in uh, organizing uh, a conference here called the Spirit Plant Medicine Conference. And that led me um, to meeting Kathleen Harrison. She's an ethnobotanist and a really wise and knowledgeable person. And uh, she and I were talking, and I told her that I felt that uh, while cannabis was spreading uh, rapidly in a variety of ways, you know, uh, medically, legally, uh, recreationally, etc., um, there, I was aware that there is an ancient and widespread use of this plant as a spiritual medicine that was not being addressed, really, as far as I could see. It seemed like it was getting short shrift. And uh, so I mentioned this to Kat that I was vaguely thinking of, you know, putting a book together, but I, I didn't think I had a whole book of information in, in me to do it. And she said, well, you know, I think that would be a really important book, and if you write it or you do it, I'll contribute to it. And uh, I've seen writing by her, and she's a beautiful writer, and as I say, very wise and insightful soul. And so that was a turning point for me. I, I thought, geez, if Kat, Kathleen Harrison will you know, contribute to it, I'm going for it. And uh, so I ended up getting a total of, uh, counting me, 18 contributors to the book. And again, the purpose 
is to um, address this sort of oversight, I suppose you could say, and um, uh, you know, remind people sort of early in the book, I have a chapter by a well-known uh, scholar on the history of cannabis and uh, ritual and religion, Chris Bennett, just to remind people that uh, it does indeed have uh, a thousands-year-old history of spiritual use on this planet in many locations throughout Asia, Europe, and Africa in particular, and more recently in the Americas. Um, and then uh, just talking about some ways that you can use it uh, that way, some attitudes and so on that uh, will help uh, you know, improve your chances of cannabis being a beneficial spiritual ally. You used a, f a word there, entheogen. Can you talk about mm -hmm. that? Yeah, it's a it's a synonym for psychedelic, psychedelics. It's a Greek word, I believe, that means mind manifesting or manifesting the mind, um, and it's actually an accurate description of uh, a number of substances uh, in the days when it was a popular term. It was particularly tended to refer to LSD in the 1960s and early 70s and so on, uh, but it it uh, it also could apply to uh, psilocybin mushrooms, uh, ayahuasca, peyote, and a number of other substances. Uh, in 1979, um, one of the researchers uh, coined the word entheogen as a replacement because psychedelics such a sloppy word, you know, in mm -hmm. cultural usage. Uh, although that that baggage has largely receded at this time, we're so far away from that now. But still, I prefer the word entheogens myself, and it, it's another, I think, Greek word that means entheo, or theo meaning God, and en meaning in, and gen meaning like generating. So it's generating the the divine within. Um, so the, which is a slightly narrower term than mind manifesting, but definitely points at the what you might call the highest potential of these plant spirit medicines. And cannabis has, uh, uh, straddles the line there. It's uh, generally considered a much milder substance, although it can be extremely powerful. And I do like to lump it into the entheogenic category for that reason. Let's talk about that specifically. How does cannabis do this? How does it uh, mind manifest? How does it bring a spiritual awakening to the user? Right. Uh, well, um, it, it's, a re it's a relationship uh, between you and the plant, as it were. Uh, you know, one of the things I think is a little bit, uh, there's a bit of a misunderstanding in our culture about um, substances in general of any kind, uh, you know, sort of a, almost like they're commodities, uh, you know, that they're fixed commodities. The, uh, the people who know these plants, including cannabis, really well understand that it is a relationship and that there is some sort of a spirit or uh, an energy in the plant uh, or that can be brought through using that plant with the right attitude, um, with the right kind of practice. Uh, there's a term set and setting, which is uh, typically uh, or often uh, applied to uh, the use of these uh, so-called major entheogens that I've referred to. And uh, set meaning everything that you bring to it, your short and long-term uh, history, emotional history, uh, psychological history, your attitude about the substance and the encounter, uh, everything that you bring to to that. Uh, and setting is the actual environment in which you take it. And uh, indigenous people have been using these kind of substances for thousands of years, and they understand that really well, especially setting. Uh, they understand that um, there are things that can happen when there's a safe, effective container uh, guided by people with great experience, knowledge, and wisdom that can open up uh, spiritual wisdom in ways that would not happen otherwise. Uh, you know, if you take psilocybin mushrooms at a party or something like that, there's a, there's a very little chance that you're going to have any idea what that can do. Um, uh, when it's done in a, a, you know, in a skillful ritual context. Cannabis is more forgiving in general than some of these other major entheogens, but uh, it can make a big difference when you're talking about using the plant for spiritual benefit. So your question, how does that work? Well, um, there's different ways to talk about it. Uh, one of the chapters in the book is by Joan Bellow, and uh, she talks about what you might call the pharmacokinetics of the of the uh, plant, which is 
how a, a substance or drug uh, enters the process by which it you know comes into your organism, your body, how it's processed within the body, and how it's expelled or released. The way Joan talks about it is that um, this, we're talking about smoking and vaporizing in particular as opposed to oral ingestion, which comes on obviously far, far slower. But when you smoke or vaporize cannabis, uh, the effect is pretty much immediate. And what happens is there's a, there's a bit of an increase in the heart rate. Uh, so the heart's working a little bit harder. It's pumping uh, freshly oxygenated, rich, freshly oxygenated blood throughout the organism. It's also been referred to by some researchers as a vasodilator, dilator, um, uh, and it's also referred to as a homeostatic balancer. So the way Joan Bellow talks about it is that um, it neither stimulates nor depresses. It balances those two functions together um, and creates a kind of a balance. And so what happens with this increase in heart rate is that there's, a, as I said, an increase of uh, blood flow into the all sec sections of the organism. Uh, it, I wouldn't say always, because if you resist the plant or, you know, or complicate it with other drugs or whatever, not necessarily going to happen, but in the best circumstances, the skeletal muscles relax, uh, breathing becomes deeper and more you know, slower, um, and the whole system is energized in a balanced way. The way, a simple way that I like to refer to cannabis is as a non-specific amplifier. Uh, this is a term that's applied to these major entheogens. Uh, they, they, in a sense, they're a gift of energy, um, and it depends on how you channel that energy. So, uh, as a, as a, uh, a benefit in your spiritual work, cannabis can be an adjunct or a supporter of a variety of practices, meditation, yoga, and so on. Because if you can channel that energy, if you can stay very present, if you can uh, dissolve the thoughts that obscure what's going on to some degree, that's sort of a basic uh, spiritual teaching, a Buddhist teaching, you know, that our, um, our uh, mental, pro our, our thoughts, what they call discursive thoughts, uh, are the, what you might call the ego's primary strategy for obscuring unconditioned reality. So... If you think of cannabis as a non-specific amplifier, then uh, with intention, with some kind of skill, uh, discipline, focus, you can deepen your practice. You can deepen your meditation. You can deepen your yoga practice, etc. Um, and then also, as Joan Bellow points out, it's not about. It's not just about the the momentary, temporary experience. Obviously, the high wears off in a couple hours if you're smoking or vaporizing. But um, again, uh, sort of referencing Joan Bellow's way of talking about it, um, it becomes it's an accumulating process, accumulative process over years. Really, you know that you because cannabis allows you to enter more deeply into the now. Um, that can become an ingrained way of being in the world. Like uh, the way I like to think of it is. Learning, of course, cannabis isn't necessary to do this. It's just an aid. Um, but learning to trust the immediate felt, perceived experience of now, of the moment, you know, um, trust your body, trust your intuition, trust your emotions. As this opening process that I talked about can uh, can open up the heart, you know, um, in in the most ideal circumstances, it can actually. Uh, allow us to sort of sink down into a state of uh, nowness, of peace even, you know? Stephen Gray is my guest, if you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit. He's the editor of the book Cannabis and Spirituality, an Explorer's Guide to an Ancient Plant Spirit Ally. And you've talked earlier about how this has gone through uh, uh, ancient times, that many people have used cannabis uh, as, a, as an ally. Uh, they already have a spiritual practice, but cannabis is a tool to uh, heighten it, to deepen, to amplify it. Is that right? Correct, yes. And and also, cannabis is used to inspire creativity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, in the same way um, <clears throat> uh, that I just referred to, the, the, the kind of the process that works. Uh, uh, again, if you're able to channel the energy, um, this is – 
creativity is sort of a, a, a little bit of a sidebar to some extent to my main focus with having put this book together, um, uh, although it's not completely separate from spiritual work. Uh, in fact, you could say that maybe what you could say is that uh, the true creativity is spiritual work, you know, that you're connecting to the spirit, you're connecting to the muse or whatever. Um, cannabis seems to open up uh, other channels of uh, insight and understanding. And uh, again, I used the, re the term vasodilator a little while ago. Uh, I know one person who's an extremely good writer, I won't use his name, um, but he's, he's an award-winning journalist and an author of uh, uh, two or three um, fairly successful nonfiction books. He always writes under the influence of cannabis, and, um, and, I, and I asked him, why? Why do you do that? And he said, it's a vasodilator. It opens up the channels a little bit, you know, um, and uh, it allows him to focus in a little more deeply and gives him insights and ways of thinking about things that uh, hadn't occurred to him before. There, there's an interview in the book with uh, two medicine shamans. They use cannabis in the, their ceremony leaders. They work with uh, entheogenic medicines and lead uh, group ceremonies, like uh, weekend long kind of things. And uh, they use cannabis for that work because as uh, his name is Steve Dyer says, it opens up a window and allows him to look into areas that he wouldn't otherwise notice. Uh, he can see the energies in the room. Uh, he can see what's going on with the participants at another level that he wasn't aware of previously or that he wouldn't normally be aware of. Um, so that sort of ties into creativity. Basically, it kind of allows you, again, to deepen your focus. You know, you can make a stronger, potentially make a stronger connection with uh, the focus of your, of your attention. I want to talk with you a little bit about uh, experiences that people might have with cannabis. Uh, now that it has become legal, I think people are, are uh, going uh, back to it. They may have tried it, for example, uh, years ago and parties or whatever, and it, it may have had a negative uh, impact, uh, paranoia or having just all these negative thoughts and, and whatnot. H how um, might people use cannabis more, uh, more wisely to have some better experiences? Yeah, well, it's with that kind of uh, discipline focus I was mentioning, John. Um, uh, the thing about cannabis, if you think of it as an amplifier, it'll it can potentially amplify everything. So if you're uh, okay, so well, there's a few ways to talk about this. Uh, it make it can make you more vulnerable, you know, because it's potentially softening up the system and uh, knocking you out of your sort of standard status quo state, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're not, if you're not, if you don't want that, if you're not ready for that, if you're not open to that, uh, that can be difficult. Um, it, it can cause some self-examination that not everyone is happy to do. Um, uh, you, you know, we again using a Buddhist way of talking about it. The, the ego is this kind of package we've put together to survive with, you know, and uh, uh, it uh, it's very conditional. Like uh, we're we're happier when things are going our way, and less happy when things aren't going our way. Um, if we get knocked off our game, you know, I'm sorry to have to drag Donald Trump into this, but I would say he's a classic example of someone whose whole existence is based on ego. And you know, you can just see that with his sensitivity about any kind of criticism, right? Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't want anybody to knock him off his game. Um, so uh, awakening, so to speak, is uh, is uh, um, being uh, able, you know, ultimately the, the sort of the enlightenment stage, I guess you could say, is where um, you're not knocked off. There is no game to, to knock you off. You're just relaxed, open-hearted, confident in uh, an unconditional way. So um, the people who have trouble with cannabis uh, or, you know, haven't liked it oftentimes, you know, when there's no kind of discipline focus that way to work with the energy, uh, is that it can amplify uh, your thinking process, and your and your thinking process can be highly problematic, of course, right? So that's I think where the paranoia comes in. Um, that in itself is a topic that could be discussed longer, but but to the simple way of putting it is that. Um, you know, there's this vulnerability that comes up. There's this sort of truth serum quality that comes up. 
and uh, you know you see things maybe uh, that you hadn't really noticed before uh, that are sensitive about what you know who you are what's going on in your interactions and so on and, and that can be really upsetting for a lot of people um, I think it's really important to use cannabis well is to in the same way that you tr you know for people that are meditators and when I say meditators I mean the most simple kinds of follow the breath type meditation which is really the primary purpose as I understand it of doing that kind of meditation is to just sort of sit down remove a lot of external distractions and allow yourself to see what comes up in your thoughts and release them and recognize this is sort of central to that spiritual process is that to realize that the thoughts are not you you don't have to get lost in them you don't have to take them seriously necessarily uh, you can just watch them as things that arise that are separate from the sort of essential you and release them you know back come back to the breath or whatever so with cannabis those thoughts become heightened they can become out of perspective they can become over emphasized or over serious and if you buy into that, things can be seeming seem to be more dramatic and you know more intense, and if they're negative, more problematic. And so I think it's really important uh, to really benefit from this medicine to be able to uh, if you know if you're having any kind of negative experiences with thoughts to just uh, recognize them and let them go. It's a, I like to think of cannabis as an energy medicine. It works best in a sense when you can get out of your own way. You've had uh, 18 uh, different contributors to this volume. Uh, any of those 18 uh, surprised you, giving you uh, some new information that you'd like to share? Oh, um, well, let me see. Um, uh, well, I love Kathleen Harrison's chapter. Um, she's, uh, it's called, Who Is She? Uh, and uh, I'm not sure if it's completely new information uh, for me, but... Uh, she has some very uh, interesting things to say about uh, how one develops a relationship with cannabis. She likes to, as, as an ally in that sense, she talks about how um, you need to treat it with respect and reverence, um, uh, almost as if you're inviting an honored guest into your home. Um, she also has some very interesting things to say, and this is a theme that comes up in the book here and there uh, by several of the contributors is, uh, as I was saying, you know, there's ways, of course, that cannabis is not a benefit to people. And Kathleen Harrison really nails that one. Uh, there's a, a page or two in her chapter where she talks about, you know, cannabis is very seductive for a lot of people. Um, it can enter you into, the, you know, regardless of, you know, you're not thinking spiritually or anything. You just people like the feeling, you know. They, they like that kind of sweet feeling that they often get from it. And uh, a lot of people, as Kathleen points out, uh, she noticed this. She's, she's been around a lot of people. She teaches a lot, does workshops and ser uh, seminars and field classes and so on with universities. And she noticed, she has noticed that uh, young men in particular that she's been around uh, have this tendency to not want to come back out of that space, um, that they find it a kind of a safe space that they've carved out for themselves. And that can be really problematic because people can get uh, wedded, I think that's her word actually, uh, wedded to that sort of state. And it can be, it can become primary. It can, they can prioritize that over uh, their connection to the, uh, and again, Kathleen's term, daylight world of responsibility and relationship. Um, so uh, there's, you know, that's a very interesting thing to be aware of, uh, the seductive quality. Um, so there is an aspect of an addictive, if, if, would that word be uh, correct in this sense too? I, I explore this addiction versus dependency issue a little bit. Um, physiologically speaking, cannabis's addictive qualities are minimal um, in the same, they're at about the same level of coffee, you know, uh, as witnessed by mm. gazillions of people who have gone cold turkey on cannabis, you know, like it's one day they decided hey, that's enough, you know, and they've maybe been using it heavily, you know, in their teens or early 20s or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, universal reportage on that is that nobody seems to have any long lasting or, I mean, intense withdrawal effects. 
maybe a few days of, you know, their patterns being thrown off, a little bit of irritation, sleep patterns changing or something, and then it sort of settles out pretty quickly. Uh, you know, as it compared to something like, uh, you know, heroin or even alcohol, which is extremely difficult to get off and has intense withdrawal symptoms. So the, so the physiological element uh, doesn't quite qualify as addiction, but perhaps more importantly, the psychological addiction or dependence factor is uh, definitely a problem for a lot of people. Um, again, uh, cannabis is kind of a gracious, almost neutral substance uh, or ally in a sense that uh, again, whatever your intention is, it will intensify it. It will uh, enhance or deepen, um, take you farther down whatever road you're already pointing down. So if your intention is in your life is to escape and avoid uh, connection, you know, uh, cannabis can take you there too. So uh, that all comes back down to this simple idea of like, well, simple conceptually of uh, what is your intention with the plant, you know, set and setting. How do you use it? What is your intention? And if your intention is to soften, to open up, to relax, to be present, uh, to open your heart, um, to deepen your meditation practice, it can help as an amplifier. I'm speaking with Stephen Gray. He's the editor of a new book, Cannabis and Spirituality, an explorer's guide to an ancient plant spirit ally. This is Progressive Spirit. We continue our conversation after the break. Stephen Gray is the editor of Cannabis and Spirituality, an explorer's guide to an ancient plant spirit ally. Cannabis in the United States uh, particularly has been uh, a much maligned drug, illegal, uh, finally becoming uh, legal first as, as medicine and, and then for recreational use in, in a few states, including Oregon. Uh, what do you see uh, some obstacles to this to this positive change, and what? How, how do you think we can make cannabis a more uh, respectable plant, <laughs> or or more uh, more respectable as uh, understood? Oh uh, well, I guess the simple word is education. You know, uh -huh. and that's what the book is all about. You know, trying to educate people that this is a spiritual plant. It's, you know, I, I can't answer that question. Uh, uh, I can't do justice to that question in a, in a in a couple of minutes, really. Um, but I will say, not only as a spiritual ally, but for many many purposes, this plant has a ancient and widespread history. Um, it is very simpatico with our uh, chemistry uh, and our uh, interwoven into the life of people for a very long time. Um, and it, it deserves to be legal um, for adults in particular, of course. Um, and it, uh, uh, it just has potential to be used uh, wisely in ways that most people who aren't familiar with it or haven't studied it at all don't realize. So it's overcoming prejudices old-standing prejudices, etc., education. As uh, one of the authors said in the book, that it, uh, human beings have really co-evolved uh, with uh, cannabis. Yeah, well, the lineage it comes from is, is estimated to be between 30 and 90 million years old. And, um, you know, to the best of our record-keeping abilities, we know that at least in China, who are reasonably good about that sort of thing. It, its use culturally goes back 10,000 years or so. Uh, odds are it's, it's much older than that. Um, there, we don't have much record beyond about 12,000 years ago on this planet. We have um, uh, uh, evidence from grave sites of the shamans in the Neolithic era, 7,500 years ago or so, of cannabis residue, that they were clearly using it as a spiritual ally uh it's 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 been around and 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 just again briefly 
we have this system in our bodies called the endocannabinoid system, the interior cannabinoid system. We're loaded with cannabis, cannabis or cannabinoids actually, uh, cannabinoid receptors to be more specific. Um, so cannabis itself is an exocannabinoid that we can introduce into our bodies. It meets these multitude of receptors throughout the brain and the nervous system and other areas of the body. Uh, uh, it's non-toxic. It has no what's called LD50, the the lethal dose at which 50% uh, of people would die. There is no LD50 for cannabis. Uh, uh, the sing singer-songwriter Willie Nelson said the only way cannabis would kill you is if a bale of it fell on your head. So it, it is very simpatico, uh, both culturally and uh, chemically, with with human beings. I know the worst thing about uh, cannabis is the oftentimes is the prison sentence that goes with it. Yes, indeed. So, yes, I, I think it's going to change. Um, you know, it just needs more people to educate uh, more people. I would like to see more people use cannabis with some sort of discipline mm -hmm. so that, um, you know, that the kind of negative experiences or reasons why people would, you know, set it aside or not feel. You know, Joan Bellow says, uh, uh, you know, that it, it makes things bigger more expansive, but more unpredictable. And if you're overly identified, I guess you could say overly identified with things as they are, you don't want to change, you don't want to be opened up, you don't want to learn, you don't have an open mind that way, um, you're really addicted to your, uh, your ego as it is, uh, cannabis can threaten that. And people won't like that. A lot of people won't like that. But that's a lot of that is in thought. So even those people, if they're willing, anyone who's willing to work with cannabis this way, if they can give it some calm, relaxed setting uh, to work with it and, you know, not take those kind of thoughts seriously, but learn, I, I don't know how easy this is for any particular human being, but learn to uh, let the thoughts calm down and just really pay attention to the energy of the plant. It can, it's a very healing plant. The physical medical healing benefits are not separate from its spiritual benefits in the way it opens up and moves energy, allows energy to move more freely in the system. Now, alcohol is the accepted drug of choice uh, in our culture. But what's the difference between alcohol and cannabis? And might cannabis be good for society? One could probably write a whole book about this, I suppose, that alcohol um, is the one sanctioned substance, you know, intoxicant or mind-altering substance, uh, and it is the least mind-manifesting, the least psychedelic of them all, in a sense, right? Mm. Um, it's an, it's, it's, it numbs. Um, that people like it because it you know, reduces their inhibitions, but it sort of reduces their inhibitions by stupefying them, right? right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, if you sit somebody down and do any kind of test with them after a drink or two or three, they, they perform more poorly. Um, uh, it, it, it just sort of shuts down a lot of things, which allows people to sort of relax a little more, but it's not with awareness, whereas uh, cannabis uh, and the other entheogens are sort of the opposite. Um, they, uh, they can, you can relax with those, with cannabis, uh, by becoming in a sense, more aware, more present. Two of the contributors talk about, uh, combining cannabis with other, uh, entheogenic medicines that it can support those in the same way that it can enhance and support, uh, certain spiritual practices. But this one, uh, particular person talked about, um, he said, uh, uh, he's an ayahuasca shaman from Brazil, actually, and uh, he works with both ayahuasca and cannabis as a spiritual medicine that he calls Santa Maria, uh, St. Mary. Um, but he said that uh, the 20th century was the alcohol century and the 21st century is going to be the cannabis century or the Santa Maria century. What would you suggest if somebody is coming and wants to try cannabis again and, and, and the importance of, uh, you know, uh, how much to take? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a repeated theme in the book as well, which is uh, less is more. Um, and that can refer to both the specific dosage in that moment and the frequency of use. Um, you know, that's a bit of a complicated topic because uh, there, uh, 
a lot of people can benefit from daily use of cannabis. Um, again, it comes down to how you're using it. You know, if you're not using it to escape, uh, if it's not numbing you out from your connection to people and, and work and so on and so on. Uh, some people find that because of this homeostatic balancing quality that um, cannabis is an effective way for them to be in a good space. Um, and we're talking about lighter dosages generally there. And, and in fact, if you use it that often, uh, the effects are softened or even you might say dulled anyway. And so for that reason, um, I and other contributors to the book uh, talk about frequency. If you really want to explore cannabis for deeper spiritual work, it seems to be important to do it less frequently because of this uh, uh, familiarization uh, tolerance kind of effect that it has. But um, also less is more could mean, uh, you know, especially if you're not really used to it and, and if you're trying to apply it, you know, to some sort of disciplined approach, uh, probably good to start with a small dosage. You know, the cannabis, much of the cannabis these days is so strong, as we know, right? The THC content is uh, is very high in a lot of cannabis now. Um, and uh, so, yeah, start starting small. And basically what I sometimes like to say is the optimal dosage for spiritual work is the dosage that you both want to and can handle in the sense of being able to stay present and not be lost in your thoughts or, uh, you know, discombobulated in some fashion or another, you know. Um, uh, on the other hand, if you can handle it and uh, and you keep it real simple, you don't start mucking with machines or anything, you know, and you just do meditation or yoga, uh, a stronger dose uh, can take you deeper, obviously. Um, so there is that. An excellent book, Cannabis and Spirituality, an Explorer's Guide to an Ancient Plant Spirit Ally. Uh, Stephen Gray, thank you for this book, and, and thanks for spending time with me today. Thank you, John. Originally, this episode had an interview with Ian Morgan Cron and Suzanne Stabile, who co-authored a book, The Road Back to You, about the Enneagram. The show has already aired on several stations, and uh, it's already had hundreds of plays on podcast. And after I sent the authors and publicists a link to the podcast, I received a response uh, from one of the authors who was not happy uh, about being paired with the marijuana guy and requested the interview be removed from the podcast. I don't want my guests to be unhappy, so I did that this one time. I'm accommodating this only because when I originally recorded the interview, Progressive Spirit was a half-hour show with one guest per show, and they were not expecting to be part of a longer show. Okay, but now that Progressive Spirit is an hour long, it can include more than one guest. Each interview is self-contained, and to put it bluntly, the show does not exist to sell your books. It is an opportunity for you to share your voice. There are many voices in this world, and they don't all say the same thing. You know, personally, I, I thought the, the show flowed rather nicely. Get spiritual with your plant spirit ally, and then explore your personality with the tool of the Enneagram. Seems like a, a natural fit to me. Illustration in point about the stigma over cannabis. We have much education to do. So, I have some space to fill out the rest of this week's podcast. I think an update regarding the police killing of Qantas Hayes is in order. Qantas Hayes is the 17-year-old African-American who, on February 9th, was shot three times by Portland police officer Andrew Hurst while Qantas was on his knees. He was shot in the head and twice in the torso with an AR-15 from a police officer 15 feet away from him. The police found a replica gun, yes, a fake gun, lying on the ground behind Qantas Hayes' bullet-ridden body. The grand jury decided not to indict Officer Hurst for the murder of Qantas Hayes. The 500-page grand jury transcript was released March 27th. According to police testimony, Officer Hurst claimed that he saw Qantas going for his gun, although he admitted he did not see a gun. The police want us to believe that Qantas was reaching for a toy gun when he was surrounded by cops, including an officer 15 feet away, pointing an AR-15 at him. 
The police testified that Qantas was not obeying commands to keep his hands up. But according to the transcript, more than one cop was telling him what to do. They told him to do different things. Was he supposed to stand, kneel, crawl? One member of the grand jury asked whether Qantas might have been confused. Good question. I think the decision not to indict was wrong. And when I say the decision was wrong, that does not necessarily mean Officer Hurst was guilty. It means that he should have faced trial. Perhaps the outcome might have been the same and he would have been found not guilty of wrongdoing. But the trial would have been open to the public. It would have included cross-examination of witnesses, for instance. A murder trial would have allowed the family and friends of the victim to talk about the character of Qantas Hayes so we could all see him as a human being whose life mattered as opposed to the media and the social media's painting of him as a violent thug. He wasn't. As far as the grand jury testimony was concerned, the question to witnesses were softball questions without, any, without of course, any cross-examination. All we have is the word of the cops that the victim didn't have his hands in the right place. The grand jury seemed to be led to the conclusion that Qantas was some dangerous threat and that the only possible solution was what resulted. The killing of a teenager did not make Portland safer. I'm not saying that Qantas did nothing wrong. Of course not. If he did what was alleged, he made some seriously bad choices. He should face the consequences for that. Well, he'll never get to do it now. Qantas Hayes was a human being. He did not deserve death. There were many other ways to, quote, disarm him than shooting him dead. If not, then this populace is in serious trouble. If the police cannot control themselves more than that, then it is the police who threaten our safety rather than act as our protectors. A few things I think need to happen. One, we need a special prosecutor, not a grand jury, for incidents of fatal police shootings. This particular case needs a federal review for, if nothing else, than to relieve the racial tensions caused by this killing. Three, the police and the entire metro needs to have an honest discussion about race, targeting, and profiling, and it needs to end. And we need more police accountability. Maybe body cameras are a good start. I wrote a letter to the editor of The Oregonian on April 7th, uh, which I wrote that this killing and the response by the grand jury is the result of racism. That was mostly vilified in the comments section by readers who said things like this. Thank you, Portland police, for eliminating a violent armed thug. And this one, what do you call two to the chest, one to the head? Good shooting. The comments themselves reveal the depth of racial hatred toward people of color. Well, then maybe I'm wrong. Does this have anything to do with race? On Monday, April 10th, I recorded an interview with Dr. Michael Eric Dyson about his book, Tears We Cannot Stop, a sermon to white America. I'm going to air a few portions of it on this show right now and then the full interview on a later episode. I asked Dr. Dyson about the killing of Qantas Hayes because I want a context for this. I asked him to explain police brutality against African Americans, the fear defense that's used by white police when they kill African Americans, and the unwillingness of the authorities, including the police and white America, to acknowledge the humanity of people of color particularly African-Americans, say his name, Qantas Hayes. Here's that interview. Tell me about policing, if you would. I'm here in Portland. Um, we had a young man here, uh, Qantas Hayes, 17-year-old. Uh, he was shot by police. Uh, do you know uh, about that story? Can you say anything uh, about the level of police and violence and young people dying at the hands of police and I mean, here, prejudice here is involved in that. example of, of the extraordinary difficulty that black people have in convincing white people that this is a reality that we confront. Um, you know, that police brutality is real, um, that the inability of black people to convince white people um, <clears throat> that this is a reality that must be confronted, that, you know, um, you know, that that it's 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 a reality that many white brothers and sisters don't have because the police don't treat them uh, the same way. And that 
um, you know, when we look at what happens to Qantas Hayes, Qantas Hayes, that, you know, the, 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 the grand jury there, I think, ruled that the shooting uh, was justified. How many times do we have to hear that unarmed black people um, are, are it, it's a justification for killing them, that it is all right to kill them, that it's acceptable, it's legal to kill them, that there is little defense we have uh, in the system of law in this country and of criminal justice to be able to support and, and sustain us um, as we argue that our lives should make a difference, that they matter. Time and again, and this is what I address in my book, police brutality rises up in America and makes a mockery of the justice system, makes a mockery of who we are uh, as human beings, that makes a mockery of us as American citizens who should be protected by the law and not made more vulnerable by that law. And so it is difficult for a police person to be brought to justice in our criminal justice system. Grand juries often will not indict a police officer in the commission of a crime. And when they do, as they did with the police officer down in South Carolina, who killed Walter Scott on tape, unbeknownst to him, or should I say on recording, um, and shot him in the back eight times, a white juror said, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't convict him. And so this is how white privilege operates. Even when we have clear and ample empirical evidence of the commission of a crime, often white officers will not be held accountable in killing uh, often unarmed uh, black or brown uh, people. So this is the this is the kind of uh, you know lunacy, uh, according to many black people, and the uh, paradox, according to me and many white people, uh, that we live in. Lunacy because we keep saying it and we keep having to prove that it's true. And no matter how much we do it, uh, it's there. Paradox because, you know, many white people say, well, look, you know, we live in a culture where black people commit most of the crime and therefore uh, most of the crime is not uh, ironically or paradoxically enough uh, involving black uh, people being killed by white police officers. It's black on black crime. And of course, you know, it is true that 93% of black people who are murdered are murdered by black people, but 84% of white people who are murdered are murdered by white people. There's no white on white crime. There's no paradigm established where uh, white people are held to account or demonized in a similar fashion or seen as worthy of other deaths because the majority of deaths will come through their killing of each other. We don't do this one, the opiate addiction. Oh my God, why are you worried about the opiate addiction? Why are you worried about uh, white people dying from heroin and the like. Most of you are dying at your own hands, so stop it. We don't see that, but when black people say the police are killing us, oh, well, forget that. <clears throat> Most of you are being killed by your own. Well, many of you are, you know, as, as much as the heroin addiction exists, most of you are not dying by heroin. You're dying at the hands of other white people who murder you. That's the kind of insult that black people have to live with constantly, and it's the kind of refusal to acknowledge the situation in which we live and the complicity of white culture and a criminal justice system that is often insensitive to us. And all of this is also related to just this this internal fear that people have of the other. I mean, it's uh, in the case, again, back to Qantas Hayes, uh, shot by an AR-15 rifle 15 feet away, once in the head, twice in the torso, because the police officer believed he had a weapon, but didn't see it, admitted in his own uh, self that he didn't see a weapon. Got all of these cops around him were so un, in, in danger. What is that? That is the fear of black masculinity, the fear of black personhood, the fear of black femininity, the fear of black people. Why do you roll up on Tamir Rice and within two seconds shoot him dead in Cleveland? Um, because it, there was a report of somebody wielding a gun and the like. And he's a 12-year-old kid playing in the park but he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt. Why? Because he's a black male. He looks older than he is. A report was released a few years ago suggesting that black kids are denied their childhood. They look older to white people than they are. Therefore, they look like adults. And the irony is many black children are treated as adults as men if they're uh, you know, male children, and many men and women are treated as children uh, by the same criminally um, unjust uh, and racist 
American system. So Barack Obama was treated like a black child to many, and Tamir Rice was exaggerated as a black man. Uh, both are discarded and disposable. And when we think about the Hayes situation in Portland, when we think about uh, Michael Brown in, in, in Ferguson, it charged me. Uh, the police officer reduced Michael Brown to a thing, to an it. You know, Martin Buber talked about ichundun, I and thou. And the, what Dr. King talked about, the thingification of our society, making things out of people. And so black people are, are the boogeyman the perennial, uh, preternatural, perpetual boogeyman uh, to many white people. The collective white unconscious sees black people as inherently threatening and black masculinity and black femininity, uh, female identity is somehow threatening. That black people uh, represent something dangerous and provocative that must be contained and corralled and ultimately eliminated and terminated. And so this is what you're dealing with, the collective belief about their essential and enduring harm and trauma to the culture, and uh, an enduring trauma and harm to the culture that must be relieved, must be resisted, and finally uh, must be eradicated. Again, going back to uh, the Qantas Hayes situation and realizing how much effort was put out to not be able to have Qantas Hayes be seen as a human being. Um, oh, yes. I mean, this is the constant worry that black people have, the threat that we are seen as a menace. And the moment a charge is against us, we have to be perfect victims. White folk can have DUIs, go to jail 10 times. You're still my child. You're still my neighbor. You're still my person, my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife. They, are, they have their humanity preserved amidst their frailty and fragility. Black people have to be perfect. And even then, uh, they are targets. Barack Obama had committed no crime, except that he existed as a black man. No crime except that he was black and president. No crime, crime except he was president while black. And Donald Trump and other birthers, millions of them denied his humanity, his legitimacy as a president, saw him as somehow un-American. Mitch McConnell had as his major, if you will, um, goal to make him a one-term president. The hypocrisy, the moral and the ethical, if you will, erosion of integrity that is manifest when it comes to relations between black and white people the mistrust, the distrust, the mistreatment. So yes, we have to see black people as human to begin with. And when we do that, then we will stop some of the evil practices and some of the unjust realities that flow in our criminal justice system, more broadly in American society and in our relations between each other. That's Michael Eric Dyson on Progressive Spirit, author of Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America. Progressive Spirit is heard every week on several radio stations across the country. 60 Minutes of Smart. Progressive Spirit is now in its sixth year and is now an hour long. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station to check it out and consider adding Progressive Spirit to its weekly lineup. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed through Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and the Pacifica Radio Network. I'm John Schock. Be welcome.